Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey everyone and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. So this and all podcasts are to be found on the Mindful Dietitian website which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and this episode is around episode 36 I think and I'm super super excited to bring you my conversation with Tiffany Haug who is a registered dietitian from San Diego in California. So Tiffany is arguably one of the funniest people I have ever met in my life. She has got the best sense of humor, which really comes across in this episode. And um, as well as having an awesome sense of humor, she also takes people's experiences very seriously, which is what I really love about her. You know, being able to hold both those spaces with, um, you know, taking other people's experiences seriously, whilst also offering some lightness into her own life and to other people's lives as well. It's just such a pleasure to to know Tiffany. So Tiffany um, shares here some really, really interesting experiences about growing up in Japan and her own lived experience with an eating disorder. We speak about the importance of representation in our culture and she offers some awesome practical tips on how we can support our clients if we are ourselves smaller bodied white female cisgender clinicians and a lot of us would relate to perhaps ticking all of those boxes or most of those boxes. So some of the conversations that we really have here are about acknowledging our positions of privilege, about um, some of the pitfalls of a assumption making, and then setting boundaries to really maintain our energy levels. Uh, here we also dig down into Tiffany's special interest in food addiction, and um, and here she really guides us from the neurobiology right through to how to talk about addiction, both from a scientific perspective and then from a practical perspective when people ask uh, questions about food addiction. So a little bit about Tiffany. Uh, she is, again, from San Diego and specialises in helping people with eating disorders make peace with food and their bodies. Uh, Tiffany knows firsthand, as I mentioned, that working through recovery can be incredibly hard. So she's been well for almost a decade and she feels incredibly honoured to now be able to give back by supporting her clients along this challenging but very worth it journey. In addition to being an outpatient eating disorder dietitian at a group practice dedicated to exclusive treating eating disorders, Tiffany serves as the education chair for the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, in other words, IADEP, the San Diego chapter, and also works as a dietitian at Centre for Discovery in Del Mar, California. So uh, let's not take things any further. Let's get on to this conversation with Tiffany and myself. Hey, Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me today. It's awesome to be chatting with you. It's so exciting to be here. I'm like so honored to be on your podcast. Oh, so you and I um, met 
first at the Body Image Workshop last year, actually almost this time last year in New York, and we had been in contact for a number of years before then. And I'll never forget the, the moment I met you, the night before the workshop when we met in that bar in New York, and I just about fell down the stairs when I saw you because, you know, you're one of those people who we'd been, um, you know, just really loosely in contact. And I was like, oh, Tiffany's a person I'd really like to be friends with. <laughs> 12 months on, well, we, we are. So <laughs> it's all really good. Yeah, that desire to be friends was definitely mutual. It was, it was so exciting when I, when I got to meet you in person for the first time. That's so cool. You've got such an interesting history, you know, such an interesting, um, uh, such an interesting journey to to come to where you are now as an eating disorders specialist dietitian, um, and as somebody who has is so committed to you know health at every size and body inclusive practice. So, if it's okay with you, I'd be really curious to ask you a little bit about um, a little bit about how you grew up, because I know you, you've got such an interesting um, way of um, telling this beautiful story about, you know, the formative parts of your upbringing, which has kind of led you to where you are now. So do you mind sharing just, just whatever parts you're kind of comfortable with and um, yeah. I'll hand over to you? Yeah, I have a very unconventional upbringing. So um, I was born in Japan. So my parents actually still live in Japan. They've worked there for like 32 years. Um, and ever like up until the age of 16, I went to Japanese public school because my parents wanted me to like be immersed in the culture and be bilingual. So I had this really unique experience of going to a school that had never had Caucasian students before. So it was all Japanese students and me and my brother and my sister were the only quote unquote white people to have ever attended. So I, the podcasters can't see me, but I have blonde hair, blue eyes. So it's very unusual for a blonde haired, blue eyed Caucasian privileged female to have an experience growing up where she's literally in the minority of all minorities. So that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. Um, and I'm actually recovered from an eating disorder myself. Um, I know that, like, I think the stat is like 60% of people who are eating disorder clinicians are recovered. Um, and I'm part of that 60%. And really, I think that just grew, growing up in a culture um, where, I mean, I wasn't represented, I mean, for a reason, because it, it, was, it was a different country. And it's um, a country that, at least a part of Japan that I grew up in, doesn't have a lot of other um, ethnicities or like countries represented um, was just seeing myself not represented out in the culture was a huge um, trigger to my eating disorder and just feeling like my um, body and appearance didn't fit in so just kind of wanting to to blend in by like disappearing mm. yeah um and I, I moved to the U.S. when I was 18. So I, I, I lived in Thailand from the age of 16 to 18. Um, and then I moved to the U.S. And again, in Thailand, I kind of had a relapse with my eating disorder. So I, I was in treatment for it twice. Um, and really throughout my childhood, I've just had a lot of experiences of just feeling like I don't fit in, um, like I'm in this country and like I feel a certain way, but like that's not uh, like the personality type that I'm seeing out in the world or like people just don't look like me. Um, 
so that was my experience growing up. Those, those are more like the negative sides. Um, also, uh, Japan is a culture that has a really high suicide rate, um, mostly um, because of the pressures that are put on kids in school. So um, their entrance exam into high school is kind of akin to like getting into a certain college in the US. So it's kind of like the, the quote unquote determinant of your future. So kids will just have this huge pressure that um, right out of junior high, like getting into high school is like kind of what's gonna lay the, re the rest of the groundwork for their, for their future. Um, and usually during like that exam time of the year, there's a super high spike in suicide rates. So uh, when I was in ninth grade, I actually had a best friend that committed suicide and that was also like a trigger to my eating disorder too. So um, those were the negative experiences growing up in Japan, but I also like got being bilingual out of it. So that's a plus and got to eat a lot of good Japanese food and experience a lot of fun things too. So that's kind of uh, my colorful upbringing up until the age of 18 in the nutshell. So in terms of representation that you spoke about, what have you taken from that up until up to now? Because this is a topic that we're still talking about, isn't it? You know, the importance yeah. of representation and then the consequences of not seeing yourself, your body um, and your experiences represented in our culture. So I'm curious to know how that's kind of flowed on to your current experience. Yeah. Um it is it is so strange to now be in a country that like i'm being represented a lot in terms of like what i look like um but i definitely notice that like it's still very like white caucasian certain appearance dominated representation um and it's just i, I mean i i know that it's just so 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 important to see yourself represented whether it's like in um like fashion magazines or like where, wherever you're looking to see someone that like looks like you and looks like you when you are at like a healthy place, um, whether it's like emotional health or physical health or whatever those areas are, um, is just so critical. And I think it's definitely something that still needs to um, make huge improvements in terms of the US and Australia probably and all these other countries that are really just representing like a certain prototype yeah and in eating in the eating disorders recovery community you know what do yeah. what do your clients and the and the communities that you work with what is their experience around um, representation or, or lack thereof yeah I think that the most common conversation I have with clients in terms of clients feeling as if they're not represented is my um, my clientele that's living in a larger body um, so a lot of times what I hear is that people just don't have any idea what it feels like to go through life in a larger body, like things that like they're perceived that you can't do or like what treatment you get at doctor's offices, um, going to clothing stores and they're not being sizes for you, being on a plane and not being able to fit into the seatbelt that they have provided or having to pay extra. So those are a lot of, I mean, depending on the person that could either be like a, uh, a bigger trauma event or a micro trauma, but those are traumas just the same. And it's just so, so, so harmful to the psyche to go through life um, feeling like you are really a misfit in the environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. And especially, um, you know, in, in recovering from an eating disorder where you're already feeling disconnected, yeah. you know, 
any opportunities that that we can um, contribute to clients feeling more connected and communities, not just individuals, but communities, yeah. um, you know, can certainly make an incredible contribution towards more collective recovery. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think for, for clinicians um, that don't live in the same body as their clients who are like describing these experiences, really asking a lot of questions and depending on the instance, just even naming the fact that they have had different experiences. So, so really just um, being like a curious listener of the client's experience because that's teaching to them, I think is really important and validating to the client. Yeah, that actually brings up something important. Um, yesterday, I spent some time with some dietetic students who were, they were so wonderful and curious and, um, you know, um, willing to engage. It was just, it was awesome experience. I always yeah. leave those, I always leave teaching feeling like, okay, yeah. this is all good. Yeah. I, have, I have faith in the future. Okay, this is good. Um, and one question that came up, which I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about is, you know, how, given that a vast majority of dietitians are smaller bodied, white women, how can we be thoughtful about the experiences of those who we're working with who don't identify in that way or who don't who who or who don't show up in the world in that way um what are your thoughts on on how we can still do really great work and and contribute towards collective learning um and um and also contribute to awareness within our own profession, I guess, about yeah. how we can how we can do that well. Yeah. So I think that when we think about, um, so if, if we are like the prototype that you just talked about, how like there are a lot of dietitians that like are kind of like this accepted, accept, accepted appearance out, out in society. Um, if we think about like how people that are like, so right now in the US, there's a lot of views around um, like a Supreme Court justice that was just um, nominated who uh, like sexually assaulted a woman a long time ago. And there's a lot of women um, posting stuff on social media about how they would like men to respond to this in terms of like supporting them. So I think if I think of like how I would want um, like the privileged white man to, to support us um, it would be probably similar um, in, in concept in terms of how you're approaching it to how people in maybe larger bodies or other minority groups would like us to support them in terms of like just really whether they understand it or not, just asking questions um, that, uh, about things that they don't know, um, just being transparent about what you don't know and being vocal about that, that if you don't know about something, then you just don't know because you don't have that lived experience. And in the ways that you do have privilege, really using that to support the people who are oppressed, I think that's the most important thing because privilege isn't something to have to apologize about or to feel like you have done something wrong, but it's really um, like a position of, for good or bad, of, of power that you have. So are you gonna be able to use that power to support the people that are oppressed? I think that that's really like kind of how that could be used for, for good and kind of lifting up the voices of people who maybe don't get as much um, like airtime 
in terms of being able to voice their experiences. Yeah, I love that idea. I think that's that's hit the nail on the head, really. So if we were to drill down a little bit more into the practicals, because maybe some people who are listening are like, yeah, I can, I can see, I, th I think I know, I think I know what you're talking about, but what would that look like in terms of the actions that I take? You know, do I have to do big, big actions or, or, you know, is it a little bit quieter and how can I, how can I match my, um, my learning style and my personality and my willingness and my confidence mm -hmm. um, to, a capacity to um, to participate in advocacy. So, what are some of the the, the practical side of things? Yeah, uh, I think that this kind of to some extent depends on the person. Um, but I would say that part of that is like not assuming that you know what the other person is experiencing or thinking. So, I think even as a clinician, this is something that I have to continue to work on. Um, but I kind of try to read people's minds, um, whether they know that I'm doing that or not. So kind of like shutting that off and thinking, okay, so I'm not going to assume what this person is thinking and I'm going to ask questions and really just find out what is true to them because that's really what listening is all about. It's not what I think that they're thinking, it's what they, they're saying is true to them. So um, in a session or in terms of interacting with someone, it could, it could be making the effort to not assume. Um, just asking a lot of questions, even if they seem dumb, um, and also giving the person permission to not respond to those questions if it just seems like super exhausting, like it's not their job to, to help you understand everything. Um, so I think asking questions, but also allowing the other person the permission to kind of protect their own energy levels too, in terms of what they choose to, to share or not share. Yeah, I, I really like that. I think it's that's really respectful. Is you know having providing a space where you're um, where you're being open to open to the information that somebody's willing to share with you without demanding that. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's and it's takes a lot more energy than than assuming what other people are thinking and just um, like kind of telling them what they're currently feeling. Um, but it's definitely, I mean, being on the receiving end of that in some friendships and relationships, it just feels a lot better and it feels a lot more humanizing to be treated that way than for someone to just kind of hear a few words from you and then kind of jump to conclusions of what you're thinking or expressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So we're talking at the moment about, you know, what you can do on an individual level and what you and I are well aware of is that um, individual work is very important in terms of advocacy and um, self-advocacy as well as, um, you know, advocating for, for and alongside someone else as a health provider, you know, for example, with our letters to doctors or our conversations with our colleagues, that is actually a form of advocacy, isn't it? You know, is having those conversations with other health professionals that can then have the flow on effect of, for example, um, improving inclusive language or, um, you know, taking the time to understand somebody's experience, you know, when they come in for a, a, a rash <laughs> rather than, you know, asking for your opinion on their, on their weight, shape or size. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess, on a more collective level too, you know, on a, on a more, on a more structural level, which I'm not sure about you, but sometimes it just feels exhausting and overwhelming, you know, and it can, yeah. and 
it can feel like, okay, I can have these conversations with maybe one person, but anything further up the ladder than that, and that feels, oh, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's super important to like um, kind of know when your limits are reached too. Um, even as like an industry clinician and, and someone who like wants to be an advocate, it can be like, it can be like all encompassing work. Um, so giving myself permission to kind of um, like disengage for a little bit too can be really helpful and just reminding myself that that doesn't mean that I'm complacent or that I'm not an advocate. It's just that I literally need like a battery recharge. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on, you know, mind, minding our own energy levels and, um, you know, taking our own advice when it comes yeah, to yeah. protecting our own, not only our own energy levels, but before you really mentioned, um, it's, it's sometimes protecting our own heart as well, you know, that, um, that sometimes stepping away from something is actually going to be in our best interests and you know our mind might say oh that was a cop out or that was you know that was avoidance or whatever but understanding the difference between avoidance and then self-care yeah, is yeah. pretty critical so what have you learned about about taking care of yourself yeah um I think that this is one of the great things about like being somewhat into adulthood versus like being like a teenager like I'm just so glad that I'm not a teenager anymore um because I think as an adult you can really choose who you decide to spend time with and who you want to spend your energy on and I am super picky about that so if I feel like someone is just uh like I mean in my personal life if I feel like someone is just like a drain and it's not like a relationship worth investing in like it's not like a family member or some kind of other situation I will I mean I really don't care I just like <laughs> I just cut it off because I can't I can't be like everything to like everyone and I have to be very resourceful about like the energy levels I have mm -hmm. so I've just gotten to the point where like I literally don't give a rip like I can only do what I can do Absolutely. My gosh, that actually sounds like super insightful and mature, to be honest. Well, thanks, Fiona. <laughs> and I'm secretly feeling kind of smug because, um, because we do really like each other. So yeah, because you're worth investing time in. <laughs> That's right, exactly. It also probably helps that I'm on completely the other side of the world. So, you know, I don't necessarily um, take up a lot of your time. <laughs> I mean, I, I invest time in people on the other side of the world because I like them. If, if, if I didn't like you, I wouldn't invest the time. <laughs> oh, bless you, Tiffany. You know what? I'm going to take that on board because sometimes my own children are not a huge fans of me. So, you know, I'll take, I will take that one. <laughs> cool. Cool. So I'm curious to understand um, a little bit more about if it's okay to change tack yeah, here. Yeah. You speak beautifully on the topic of food addiction and I know that this is a very special interest area of yours and these are topics um, which would arise quite commonly in dietetic practice where you know somebody might come to us and say either I'm addicted to um, usually sugar uh, or, or insert some other source of nutrition here um, or I feel like I'm addicted so I'm not sure exactly where 
it makes sense to start with this kind of conversation. So I'm going to leave that up to you. But you know, how did, how did you first start kind of getting interested? Because I know when you started getting interested, you kind of took a dive in and then it feels like you, you like went down this rabbit hole and, yeah. um, and kind of here we are. Yeah, yeah. So um, in my master's degree, I had the opportunity to write a paper um, unpublished. So unfortunately, it's not available um, on the relationship between low carbohydrate diets and depression. And what I actually found through the research is that it was really, really related. Um, and the reason why is because certain things are substrates for the neurochemicals like serotonin or dopamine, which are mood stabilizing and like mood enhancing neurochemicals um, are found in like they're better digested from foods with carbohydrates in them. So it really got me interested in how like food can impact neurochemistry and um, like feelings towards foods. Uh, so that was kind of like my initial interest in it. And Marcy Evans, our wonderful, intelligent colleague, speaks a lot on food addiction. And I think just from like recalling that experience in grad school and listening to her talking, it just really intrigued me. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak at um, a couple conferences on food addiction in really different situations. So one was actually at a conference um, for people who were considering bariatric surgery or who had already had bariatric surgery. Um, and even though I was pretty hesitant to speak at that conference because it's not really aligned um, with, with the direction that I kind of take my counseling in, um, I thought it was a great opportunity to talk about how, um, I mean, in bariatric surgery, like post-surgery, you're on this pretty low calorie diet and a lot of people are feeling like they're just really fixated on these foods. So kind of giving an understanding of in the presence of caloric restriction and food deprivation, we will fixate more on a food. And it's not because we're addicted to that food. It's just because we're not allowing ourselves to have that food. And by incorporating it in more consistent um, and like ways that feel or ways that you're telling yourself are permissible, really takes away like that, that charge associated with that food of, of addictive, like of it feeling addictive. Um, and I also spoke at the California Academy of Nutrition Dietetics conference this year on food addiction. Um, a lot of the same stuff, um, but, but to dietitians. And it was really interesting, actually, how um, a lot of the questions that I got in the audience from, from that first conference mirrored the questions that I got from dietitians. Mm. So I think a lot of dietitians are super interested in the, in the idea. But, but don't have a lot of understanding of really what's happening neurochemically. And when you don't understand something, you kind of just defer to the research that's out there. And right now, unfortunately, the research is kind of stating almost that like food addiction is a thing. But when you go read their papers, there's a lot of inconsistencies and the studies aren't conducted in great ways. Um, so I think it's just a topic of great interest and great importance to continue to talk about and be curious about. Um, because you can't really take the research at face value that's out there right now because it's pretty poorly conducted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, and that's really important for us to be able to translate when people ask us those questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when, so in situations where somebody says, I feel like I'm addicted to insert food here mm -hmm. or a group of foods or, or however it is expressed, yeah. what is a 
what is a, a clear way that we can start that conversation which doesn't shut it down and which doesn't make the person feel silly or you know um, or misunderstood um, so what is a kind of a, a compassionate way that we can kind of stick with the science yeah. and at the same time also validate and acknowledge the person's very real feeling about being strongly kind of cued into certain foods like can you give it can you give an example of yeah. of your spiel I guess <laughs> what you would say yeah yeah so if someone comes to me and they feel like they're addicted to a certain food I probably at no point will say in that session food addiction is nothing like, I mean, I, I actually won't. I said probably, but I, I just won't. Yeah, great. Um, thank you. So, so I'll start with, like, validating in terms of, like, oh, that sounds like a super, like, that would be really distressing to feel like you're addicted to a certain food. And I can understand why you've had to, why, why you feel like you've had to cut out that food because it seems really out of control for you. So I think that the basis of validation is, like, the most important thing. If they leave with nothing else, just being validated is beneficial to their health. So um, that's like number one. And this is probably throughout like many sessions, um, but sharing um, maybe some of the background and framing it as, oh, I hear like, I mean, it sounds like you feel like you're very addicted to this food. Can I share with you a little bit what research says in terms of like people who feel like they're addicted to food, there's usually this other stuff going on does that kind of click for you? Do you feel like that's your experience? Um, how would you describe your experience? So incorporating the science in that way. And um, depending on like how long I'm working with someone or what stage of change that they're at, they may eventually want to experiment with incorporating that trigger food or charged food back into their diet. And I think, um, and Marcy Evans speaks really beautifully into this, but I think really structuring that experience um, even if it's like, even if it seems like a really, really minor exposure to the clinician, um, just setting it up in a way that they can feel self-efficacy around that food, I think is really super important. Um, so for example, if it's like, they feel like they are addicted to peanut butter M&Ms, like maybe it actually is setting like a serving size, even though we know that that is like kind of crap in most instances, but, but for that instance, setting a serving size, saying like this many M&Ms or this serving of M&Ms and having them eat that and kind of record their experiences so that it's really controlled. And maybe from that, you're moving forward to kind of like more intuitive portioning, um, but it's really okay to meet people where they're at. And we can't expect people to just know this, mm information that like is caused by caloric restriction um, or food deprivation mm -hmm. and just by that knowledge being able to eat intuitively we really have to take like a stepwise approach and I think that's the way to kind of build confidence within people that they're able to like moderate this to or moderate isn't a great word but like um, kind of navigate these like waters of incorporating this food back in yeah, I love that. So what you're saying is, you know, that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're still able to, um, still able to step, to step people through this process in a way that at the very start, it feels a bit counter to our work usually. Yeah. But actually what you've, what you've really laid out there so beautifully is how actually 
meeting people where they're at at start is it's it's about building confidence and how can we build confidence in a direction ultimately of food peace and food freedom and sometimes we need to start from almost like a, a non-diet counter counterintuitive place by offering things like portion sizes but um, within a, a framework of curiosity and in a framework of mindful awareness, for example, you know, in whatever capacity people have yeah. to do to actually do that. Yeah. And I feel like that was a huge turning point for me as a clinician when I realized that like, I kind of have this like framework of like where I would like people to get to, but that doesn't mean that I can't use like things that are out there in terms of diet culture, for the good, like in terms of meeting people where they're at. So if someone comes in on like a ridiculously inappropriate calorie meal plan and they're just really calorie obsessed, maybe that means like actually working with that calorie thing and increasing it within that session or like using that in some way. And of course this is like very individual, um, but I don't think, like you said, we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and we can use these things to kind of meet people where they're at, where it doesn't seem like they're having to like jump over flights of stairs to get to this place where we want them to be at. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to go back to your example of the M&Ms, because that's actually a beautiful practical example um, and probably a realistic type of food as well, maybe that people feel like, you know, once I open the packet, that's it, they're gone. I can't, I feel out of control. I feel like, it, you know, um, you know, I can't even have them in the house, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, an example there might be that, you know, it's not us that gets to decide portion size. You know, maybe it's a negotiated type of type of thing, you know, and and again to 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 kind of move forward as an experiment and in a sense of noticing and in a sense of, you know, open awareness and um and being able to stay really present with that experience, even if the portion, the negotiated, say, portion size is one, you know, yeah, it's yeah. even if it's one, is the willingness to notice the experience um, of having one, one M&M, you know, and yeah, yeah. Um, and then to move and then to move and build from there. So my yeah. question for you, Tiffany, is. Um, would you, how would you, um, are there situations where you would do this um, with, with somebody in your office and, and how would you decide whether to do that or to kind of send them home with it? Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. Uh, if I do an exposure, um, like, like something that is like a, like a trigger food instead of just like eating a meal with a client, which I feel like is more conducive, like eating a meal, I feel like is more conducive to, they can bring their lunch in session and we can have it together. But I really like to go out in the community if it's something that is like triggering to them. I mean, M&Ms, I guess you could do that anywhere. Uh, but for example, if it's like ice cream or like a croissant, I think there's a lot of value in like accompanying the client like in the setting that they would actually be in and talking them through being in that outside of office experience. Um, I guess it really just depends on the stage of change that the client is at. If they're able, if they're at a place that they're able to do that. And I think that asking them questions and also using like their own clinical judgment is super important with that. Um, if a client I mean, it, it just it just really depends. But I would say that for the most part, if a client is having trouble meeting their basic 
physical needs and um, like just restricting baseline, it probably isn't the best time because they're also not going to feel as in control with that food because we talked about how in the presence of caloric restriction, someone is like more likely to feel out of control with the food. So it depends on the person, but I would say for the most part, there needs to be like a certain level of like stability and consistency with like eating patterns that are already there. Mm, yeah, that you actually make a really good point. So what you're saying is, you know, setting up energy sufficiency and some reliability and some consistency first yeah. before then stepping into a space where we can, in the absence of overt restriction and um, calorie insufficiency, we're kind of from a place of stability, yeah. even if it's just a little bit of stability, knowing that that, yeah. that can take a long time, yeah. um, that that's a, that's a good kind of platform to launch from. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because if I haven't eaten in like a day, like I may be able to eat that portion size of M&Ms, but I'm going to be freaked out because I'm not satisfied by that because I literally haven't eaten for a day. So it's really like not, not enforcing any kind of self-efficacy with being able to incorporate that food into like a normal meal plan that includes, or a normal eating plan that includes like meals and snacks and consistency, like you said. Yeah, totally get it. Uh, on that note, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask you a little bit about, you know, because um, a lot of folks that I work with, their kind of core source of distress is around um, is around foods that they pr would prefer not to have. They're just kind of, you know, they're just regular foods, um, but with food rules and um, diet mentality, they are not allowing themselves to, to you yeah. know, have those foods. And yeah. so they're kind of, their source of distress is really centered around, you know, the not allowing of those foods. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, or not sometimes, often feel like, you know, the, the eating regularly and the kind of getting consistency and stability is really hard alongside this kind of this pushing away or avoidance or diet mentality. So yeah. I'm kind of curious to ask you about how do you navigate that? Because a lot of people are kind of in a rush to yeah. really want to, I don't want to eat these foods anymore. Yeah. And the way I work is, you know, trying to yes, to reestablish those, that stability yeah. first. It's not easy. Yeah. That's like so hard. I don't think that there's like a, it's, I mean, it's something that definitely comes up in sessions and it's really hard to navigate. Um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't always like, like result in change, but, but one of the things that I share with my clients is that even like, if you're able to eat even foods that you don't like, that's actually like a skill too, because I've, I'm like traveling on a road trip and like, I only have a gas station available to get food from, even if I'm not a fan of those foods, like I need to have the skill of being able to like see what my selections are, choose something that is like adequate for me and that maybe I somewhat like, like that's not an absolute requirement to meet energy needs um, and choose it and then eat it. And like, that's maybe not super intuitive because you're not choosing something that tastes delightful to you, but it's also self-care because you're meeting your energy needs. And if someone is super resistant with incorporating foods that they say that they just don't like, but it's actually like diet mentality, I would be like, so it actually shouldn't be a big deal if it's not due to diet mentality to like incorporate this, even though you're telling me that you don't like it, like let's, let's try it. And oh my God. I love that. I love that. I'm going to use that. 
but but it's like I mean I, I know that when I was going through my own recovery I had ab- ambivalence with like because I actually grew up in Japan I actually didn't know I was like do I really like things like hamburgers like I don't know it's like not like a comfort food to me I didn't grow up with it um but still like forcing myself to engage in social experiences that involved hamburgers or like still having it um, just to like see if I liked it or just like practicing the skill of like being flexible with eating was super, super duper, duper important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's actually, um, that's, that's not a huge part of the conversations that I have with people. So I'm going to put that back in, you know, that's why I love having these kind of talks because it reminds me of all the, um, not only the nuance, but also the little corners that we can get into. Um, and, and also shines a light on the way that, that people might not fully recover, you know, that if we're, if we're kind of recovering in the context of the foods that we like or the foods that we see as acceptable, then, you know, we, we kind of never broaden that right out to as many foods as are, as are accessible as possible. So what a beautiful way to shine those lights in those corners. And, um, I can try and find the reference, but there was a study that came out recently that the people who had achieved full remission from their eating disorder, they were more likely to have a higher diversity of foods mm. and specifically in the carbohydrate category, which was mm. interesting too, um, especially with like the whole like gluten-free thing mm-hmm. that's been going on for a while. I think it's just really important to, I mean, when relevant to bring that into session too, of like, it's not just a matter of like, you know that you don't like this food, but like let's at least try it because we know that like establishing as much variety as possible with the different food groups is actually like linked in research to recovery and full remission. Oh, okay. And and that is definitely worth paying attention to there now, especially with our with the um with what we know about the percentage of people that either do not achieve whatever you know arbitrary kind of a definition we have of full recovery but uh, the, but there are there are a lot of folks who relapse into full-blown a, a clinical diagnosis and or um kind of reach sort of recovered um and never and then never kind of live fully because yeah. they're never quite there if that makes sense yeah. Yeah, like the land of re- not uh, the land of recovered enough. That's the one. The yeah. land of the land of recovered enough. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. I'm recovered enough yeah. to get sort of life stuff done, but not recovered enough to actually in- get fully engage in life and yeah. get yeah. the important shit done. Yeah, and even if it takes like ten years to go from the land of recovered enough to the land of like full remission or like whatever whatever point that you can go beyond that it's like so worth the effort because that further frees up the amount of social things you can mm-hmm. participate in, whether you can travel or not, um, whether you can experience situations where you have like limited foods that you can choose from. It just really opens up the scope of the things you can experience in life. Oh, definitely. And also, um, you know, aside from food also helps us navigate natural body changes that are going to happen. They yeah. just, they yeah. are going to happen through life. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, just just a normal part of biology. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I've, I, you know, in in 
in speaking with people, for example, who, who um, you know, kind of do a majority of their recovery, for example, during their teenage years versus those who are doing it kind of more in their 20s, more in their 30s, 40s and beyond, I actually find it a really interesting conversation to have because if you think about the time in your life where biologically we may have the least amount of body change i'm just talking biologically definitely not on an individual level but more if we're broad kind of taking a broad kind of look at it it's probably during late teens early 20s right yeah. um, oh, sorry late tweens teens and then during your 20s somewhere yeah. Yeah. you know if we left the body alone it you know give or take life circumstances right that is probably the time in life where our body shape and weight and size would be most stable. Mm -hmm. And yet so many people say, I've actually got no idea. I've got no idea where my, where my natural kind of mm -hmm. body, body kind of sits, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, um, and navigating that can just be really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah, that can be so tricky, especially for uh, clients who maybe, suffered from their eating disorder at one point and then they had like a relapse during a time that like your body actually should be at like a higher set point I know that that's like really hard for clients to hear that like actually how you're supposed to be or like we think that we should you should be mm -hmm. at a really different place I know that that's really hard but I mean even if you don't have an eating disorder like that should be happening with everyone they should be at a different place biologically throughout their lifespan yeah definitely so to to be able to learn those skills of um resilience i guess resilience yeah. and um you know being with change Ugh, change yeah. Ugh, yeah. it's just as yeah. hard as being an adult <laughs> yes. adulting oh adulting sucks even on the good days goodness me <laughs> my my biggest example of adulting from this past week is um i i got like a a, a cash gift from my grandma for my for my birthday um, last week, and then I used it for my copay at, at my doctor's appointment yesterday. Oh. <laughs> oh, Tiffany, did you at least have some left over for ice cream? I had some left over, but but not very much. I use I use seventy five percent of it towards my copay. <laughs> oh, did you buy a delicious ice cream or something? I I need to do it. I haven't done that yet, but I need you to do totally it. do. But I but I felt like an adult when I did that. <laughs> oh my goodness! And at the same time, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does suck. But I was like, I guess I'm gonna. I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Ugh, so uncomfortable. <laughs> Acceptance, hey? Who'd do it? Yeah. <laughs> um, Tiffany, thank you so, so much for being here. As always, you know, it's such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your own personal experience, so much wisdom, and um, sharing so many of those little practical tips, which I know are just really helpful um, in practice. So, so thank you so, so much. Really appreciate your time and energy. Thank you so much, Fiona. You're just a joy and a light. And I'm so glad that you want to spend time with me too. And we got to chat, to chat together. Um, and I'm just really happy to be here. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. 
Have a great day, everyone. 